Welcome to a History of Submarines podcast. Welcome to part one of the golden age of submarine invention. An episode of A History of Submarines cut into several parts for your convenience. We come now to the age when the imagination of numerous dreamers, visionaries, and inventors would move beyond their daydreams and their diaries and turned into actual working submarine prototypes. A number of problems were left to be solved before the submarine could become more than a fantasy. There were the Holy Pentagon, as I call it, or Five Star Challenge, consisting of the right hull, a proper air replenishment system, stable buoyancy, a working torpedo, and, of course, propulsion. After the baby steps discussed in the first episode about such people as Cornelius Dribble, things had been somewhat quiet in the submarine front until the 19th century arrived, and this was no coincidence. As is so often the case in history, developments need a protagonist and an antagonist to drive the story forward. A Goliath and a David, if you will. So let me give you a lay of the land, the situation of the world in the year 1800. It was a time when the British Royal Navy, the protagonist in our story, dominated the seas. In the years before, nations that found themselves at war with the British hadn't built a fleet big enough to beat them. And when they did have to duke it out with good old John Bull, they didn't have the means or the time to construct a fleet powerful enough to do that. Usually, the war had been won by the British before they were ready. One clear example of this was the Napoleonic Wars. The British were able to blockade almost the entire European continent, much of which was conquered by Napoleon, of course, and when the French Navy did try to contest British hegemony, they were roundly beaten. Being an island nation, the British knew that they needed a navy to ward off assailants. Its defeat of the Spanish invasion armada of 1588 was, of course, direct proof of this. Then they realized that they needed a strong navy to go beyond its coastal waters to defend its straits routes to foreign countries. After that came the realization that they could use their navy to colonize and then defend the trade routes to and from those many colonies. Great Britain also had an abundance of resources to build many ships, wood, iron, labor, and a financial system that worked to finance it all. So it was only logical that the British would build a fleet to rule the seas, and this they did. With the riches coming in from the colonies that were spread all over the globe, the Royal Navy expanded every 10 years or so. Other nations then had to look for other, cheaper means to confront that Royal Navy. As a defeated French admiral admitted to a British captain after a sea battle, the French Navy, he said, was 10 years behind the Royal Navy in both size and level of innovation. So it stood to reason that perhaps a cheaply built navy operating unseen below the surface could challenge the British. It was under this premise that inventors went to work for years to come. And so the irony is that the Royal Navy turned out to be the main driver for alternative means of waging war at sea, mainly submarines. One could even argue that, had there not been such a dominant force, submarine development may have been slower. Point of fact, development had stood still for many years until it was picked up again by the likes of David Bushnell in the American Revolutionary War against the British. The first designs of the early 19th century were largely based on the old designs of Treble and Bushnell. It was still trial and error. 
The period between 1800 and 1914 saw a torrent of activity all over the world, with innovators coming up with all kinds of improvements and sometimes outright outlandish ideas to submerge successfully and survive. These inventors would provide the pieces which, much later, other inventors would use to complete the puzzle. And again, of course, war also was a driver of that innovation because governments drew the press to invest the much-needed money. And although this episode starts in 1800, we smuggle back just a wee bit into the last years of the 18th century, when an American of Irish ancestry named Robert Fulton stepped onto the scene. Robert Fulton was born on November 14, 1765, in the town of Lancaster in the state of Pennsylvania. He went to a Quaker school and acquainted himself with miniature painting in a jewelry shop. Fulton was creative, sort his mind wandered into all directions, including the field of engineering. He seemed a promising painter and managed to cobble together money from wealthy financiers, which allowed him to travel to London, England. There he set up shop as a painter. Unfortunately, Londoners weren't very impressed with his work, so that came to nothing. He then took an interest in engineering properly. He improved on a steam propulsion engine and dabbled in the design of canals and bridges, specialized cargo boats, locks and sluices and the like. But not much came of it. The British government was lukewarm in his ideas and plans. So he then moved to revolutionary France, where he arrived in Paris in 1797, just when France and Britain had gone off to war. The French immediately ran into the dominance of the Royal Navy, which had started a naval blockade. Throughout the years, Fulton had also been thinking about submarines, imagining ways to improve on the works of Drebbel and Bushnell. His thoughts culminated in the design for the infamous Nautilus submarine. The Nautilus was a little over 20 feet in length, or some 7 meters. Her teardrop-shaped hull, an innovation by itself, was made of wood, iron ribs, and copper plating. One of Fulton's innovations to the field was twin propulsion. Submerged propulsion was a hand crank, like the designs of Drebbel and Bushnell, operated by two crew members. When on the surface, the Nautilus could quickly unfurl sail and just as quickly wrap it up again. The other innovation was diving rudders at the front. Thus far, submarine designs had mainly relied on buoyancy. The submarine went up and down vertically using ballast tanks. Fulton used the rudders at the front as an early form of diving planes, so as to push the Nautilus underwater at speed in combination with the buoyancy provided by the ballast tanks. This allowed for quicker diving, surfacing, and balancing underwater. Heavy copper layering below the keel allowed for stability. Another innovation, though only in name, was the torpedo. Fulton's method of attacking a surface ship was again an improvement on Bushnell's idea. Bushnell, as you'll remember, tried to basically drill a bomb into a ship's hull. Fulton's improvement was what he called the Horn of the Nautilus, a spike that sat on top of his small conning tower. When below the target ship, Fulton would drill the spike into the hull. The spike had an encased flintlock and an eye hole. A wire acting as a tow rope ran from the Nautilus through that eye hole and then onto a floating power case that was dragged forward by the Nautilus, using the wire through the eye hole to draw the power case to the target. The idea was that if the spike was in place, the Nautilus would move forward, thus moving the submarine out of danger, while the tow rope from the submarine pulled the powder gaze against the spike. Then the tow rope would pull the trigger, causing an explosion, hopefully sinking the ship. This powder case Fulton called the torpedo. He got the name from a fish, the Electrophorus electricus, more commonly known as the electric stingray, and for which another name is the torpedo electricus. 
And so that's where the word torpedo entered the world's lexicon. But Fulton had difficulty convincing the Admiralty of the French Revolutionary government to finance his project. He argued that an effective campaign blowing up Royal Navy ships by even a small number of submarines would terrorize the British enough to, for them to pull off the channel, thus breaking the naval blockade. He also offered the idea to the government of the then Batavian Republic, presently known as the Netherlands, but they weren't interested either. So then he went back to the French government, offering them to finance the project himself and only have them pay once he sank the first enemy ship. That also fell on deaf ears. Fulton vented his frustration in a letter to a friend back in America. He was by now convinced of the efficacy of the submarine against the Royal Navy. He wrote, quote, I would ask anyone if all the American difficulties during this war are not owing to the naval systems of Europe and the licensed robbery on the ocean. How then is America to prevent this? Certainly not by attempting to build a fleet to cope with the fleets of Europe, but if possible by rendering those fleets useless. Summarized, Fulton opined that nations should not try to build its own Goliath, but instead create David's. And in this, he was somewhat of a visionary too. It wasn't until after Napoleon Bonaparte had established his regime that Fulton finally found a willing ear. Napoleon wasn't completely convinced, but the possibility of breaking the Royal Navy's blockade, well, that was too alluring to let pass. Also because Napoleon had entertained the idea to invade Great Britain and knock him out of the war. For that, he needed the channel to be clear of the Royal Navy. And so he first had a commission study the feasibility of Fulton's proposals and then finance the improvement of the first operational Nautilus, which Fulton had started building on his own anyway. First, there were several successful trial runs in the Seine River near Paris and in the port of Le Havre, followed by a trial attack against an old ship in the harbor of Brest. The torpedo worked and blew up the ship. Then Fulton took the Nautilus out for a spin on the channel. And when that too turned out to be a success, it was time for the first real tests. Fulton tried attacking his first real targets, British ships close to the French coast, part of the blockade. But Fulton wasn't the only one who had read up on the history of Bushnell's turtle and his failed attacks on the Royal Navy ships in New York's Hudson's Bay. Whenever Fulton moved in, he saw his targets weigh anchor and move away. Rumor had it that the British had spies along the French shore who warned the ships whenever the Nautilus left harbor. Whether this is true is or not is beside the point. The British clearly knew of the submarine's existence, and they took their precautions. A lack of supplies and exhaustion of his crew invariably forced Fulton back to rest. The British prevented nighttime attacks by having rowboats picket around their ships continuously. Napoleon then lost interest in the project and withdrew his support. Next, Fulton tried selling Napoleon the idea of steamboats, or ships with steam propulsion instead of sails, allowing the French to outrun and outmaneuver the Royal Navy, to which Napoleon is said to have famously replied, You wish to set fires inside wooden ships? I will have none of this nonsense. But the idea of steam propulsion stuck in Fulton's mind. It was around this time that British Admiral Nelson decisively beat the French Navy at Trafalgar, bringing an end to any dreams the French may have had of breaking the Royal Navy's back. Napoleon dropped plans for an invasion of the British Isles and moved his Grand Army east into continental Europe and history. Frustrated, Fulton left for Great Britain, where he used his connections to get the British Prime Minister interested in his idea. And as far as I can tell, it is unknown what happened to the Nautilus in France. 
Fulton submitted his ideas for an improved version of a submarine and a torpedo to the British government. According to various sources, British Prime Minister Pitt and the Admiralty were only interested in his torpedo, not in the submarine. The British Prime Minister allowed him to demonstrate his torpedoes on a captured Danish brig in front of all the British admirals of the Royal Navy. When after sending his torpedoes, nothing seemed to happen, the gathered admirals snickered and scoffed and laughed and tee-heed and ha 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 and started to dig into their lunch when all of a sudden two explosions blew the brig to smithereens. Fulton later made a woodcut of the scene himself, showing how the big ship was blown to bits. It is said that the head of the British Admiralty, Lord St. Vincent, was quite appalled by the sight, and that he wished to have none of it, and would rather see the entire idea of submarines buried and forgotten. He is quoted as saying, The Prime Minister was the greatest fool to have ever existed, to encourage a mode of war which they who command the sea did not want, and which, if successful, would deprive them of it. If anything, Lord St. Vincent's words underlined that he understood the potency of submarines and the threat they posed to the hegemony of the Royal Navy. So much so, actually, that the government decided to drop the submarine matter entirely. Fulton was done in Europe, and he moved back to the United States to focus on steamboats. The U.S. government didn't show much interest in submarines either. Fulton, however, never abandoned his idea to build a successful submarine. According to several sources, he started constructing a new, far bigger submarine called the Mute, incorporating his ideas for steam propulsion. However, Fulton died in 1815 before he could finish it, and it is unknown what happened to the Mute. Some sources state that Fulton never got to finish the hull. Other sources suggest that he did, and that the hull was in fact moored in Brooklyn Port for a while, then rotted away after Fulton's death and finally sank in the port. It is not surprising that Fulton had again turned to submarine construction because at that time, the War of 1812 between the United States and Great Britain was raging. And wouldn't you know it, the British had started a blockade again. And although the mute would never sail, someone else is said to have brushed off old David Bushnell's designs and built an improved version of the turtle. And again, as we shall see many times in this podcast, all the way until the end of the Second Battle of the Atlantic and World War II, the submarine proved the poor man's choice of weapon to try and defeat the Royal Navy. At the start of the War of 1812, President James Madison had decreed the liberal use of letters of mark. As discussed in our previous episode, giving privateers a carte blanche was common policy all over the world. And so, according to legend, in 1813, a man named Silas Cloudon Halsey is said to have built a cigar-shaped one-man submarine using a hand crank propeller and towing a torpedo. Now, I must admit that the details are a little sketchy, literally so, because we only know this story thanks to famous arms manufacturer Samuel Colt who was said to have reconstructed the plans for this new version of the turtle thanks to interviews with people who were involved in its construction. Colt also turned out to be a member of the submarine enthusiast cult. All that was left to posterity was a sketch that Colt drew of Halsey's submarine in 1842, so years after the fact. Either way, this story goes that Mr. Clouden Halsey, on June 30, 1813, tried to attack HMS Remilies, a ship of the line of the Royal Navy that was enforcing the naval blockade just outside New London, Connecticut. It is said that Halsey succeeded in coming close to the ship, but then had to surface to replenish air, upon which a sentry caught sight of the submarine and raised the alarm. The captain cut anchor and moved out. Then Halsey tried again and managed to drill into the copper sheathing of the ship, where Bushnell had failed 30 years earlier. Unfortunately, or so the story goes, the drill broke, 
and Halsey had to break off the attack and return to shore. As to what happened afterward, it's sadly shrouded in mist. Samuel Colt is said to have hinted that Halsey perished in a submarine in New London's harbor. And with that, with the end of the War of 1812 and the final defeat of Napoleon in 1815, peace is restored. There is no incentive for beleaguered governments to draw the purse for investment in stuff like submarines. After Fulton and Halsey followed a sort of interbellum in which journeyman inventors dabbled in submarine inventions, most of which were based on the designs of their predecessors. In 1831, for instance, a Catalan inventor, so in Spain, known only by the name of Cervo, ostensibly built a small submarine but disappeared on the submarine's first journey. A year later, a Frenchman named Brutus de Villeroy also designed a small submarine but found no investors as it was peacetime and it was hard to envisage a commercial role for his submarine. But we will meet the Villois again later. And a Dr. Jean-Baptiste Petit of the city of Amiens built a small submarine in 1834. But like Servo, he perished on his first submerged journey. Then there's a bit of a lull. An interest in submarine development only picks up again because countries went to war again. This time, it's between Denmark and Germans in 1850. I say Germans and not Germany because this war over who has dominion over the Schleswig-Holstein regions, while Germany did not really exist, but maybe did. Well, it's, anyway, it's, it's, it's really complicated, so I won't bother you with it. Uh, suffice it to say that Denmark traditionally had a pretty strong fleet as opposed to the German states. And what do nations with strong fleets do? Well, they start a blockade. This time, it was a German man named Wilhelm Bauer who basically rehashed the original idea of David Bushnell, here we go again, and his turtle to build Germany's first Unterseeboot, or U-boat. You know what that stands for. Bauer was an artillery engineer from Bavaria who witnessed the Danish blockade of harbor cities like Kiel. So with the knowledge of the submarines before his, he designed the Brandtaucher, or fire diver, submarine. It looks a lot like a lifeboat made of metal, with a metal roof, a small turret on top of one end, and a propeller sticking out on the other end. Seen from the side, it's nothing like Fulton's teardrop design at all, and instead more like a square lunchbox turned onto its side. We know this because the fire diver is still on display in a museum in the German city of Dresden. So go ahead, put this podcast on pause for a second. Fire up your browser and look for Fire Diver or Incendiary Diver, or if your German spelling is up to par, Brandhauger, combined with Dresden, and you should immediately see your search results populate with dozens of what is arguably one ugly submarine. The non cylindrical design would later prove to be the fatal flaw, one that Bauer hadn't anticipated, but from which later submarines designers, including Bauer himself, actually learned valuable lessons. In this, Bauer provided another piece of the puzzle. The Brandtaucher was 8 meters or 26 feet in length and 2 meters or 6.5 feet at its widest point. It held a crew of three, two operating a hand crank propeller with the third crew member operating the rudder. Instead of anything like a torpedo, the fire diver's turret was fitted with a rubber glove. The third crew member, in this case Bauer himself, would use the glove to reach for a bomb attach the submarine's hull, and then stick the bomb to the hull of his ship with a timed fuse. It all seemed very sound and solid. If anything, the fire diver's hull seemed the next step in submarine development. But the navy of the fledgling German Confederation did not want to fully fund the fire diver, so Bauer was forced to cut corners. The design called for ballast tanks to be attached to the hull, so on the outside, but budget cuts and pressure to speed things up forced Bauer's hand. Instead of ballast tanks, water would be allowed to flow directly into the hull below the crew's feet. Uh, 
this was a disaster waiting to happen. The first sortie went smoothly. The second sortie in February 1, 1851, however, was when disaster struck. Bauer submerged the fire diver and water flowed into the submarine. Now, of course, allowing water to flow into an essentially closed tube-like contraption while underwater means that you have to be very careful with your diving angles because of balance, because you don't want that much water to rush forward or aft. As any submarine specialist worth his salt will tell you, if you plan to dive deep, you'd better have a reinforced cylindrical hull to evenly resist the water pressure per square inch. This was not the fire diver's design at all. After Barr had brought her below 9 meters or 30 feet, the hull started to crack, damaging the water pumps. Barr was unable to flush out the water. Then the stern sank quicker than the bow, causing the water to rush aft. The submarine keeled over and sank like a brick, stern first. The sub sank into a hole into the bottom of the sea floor, some 18 meters or 60 feet below sea level. One of the crew members panicked and tried to force his way to the torrent to get out. Bauer and the other crew member had to beat him into submission. Now, at that depth, with so much water pressure per square inch, opening the hatch was extremely difficult, if not impossible, keeping it shut tight. Flushing out the water was also off the question because of the broken pumps, and the help could not be quickly expected. So Bauer decided to rely on the laws of physics. They would slowly allow even more water into the fire diver, which would raise the air pressure inside the submarine to act as a counterweight against the water pressure, keeping the hatch shut. The expected air pressure release would also help the crew to be catapulted from inside the sub. So they waited for an agonizing six hours, while the air inside the submarine turned into carbon dioxide. Then, when pressure had become high enough, they forced open the hatch and let themselves be flushed out. The submarine remained on the bottom and was rediscovered in 1887 and moved to the museum where it is today. Undeterred, William Bauer tried to sell the submarine idea to other potential clients, but it's no surprise that his failure didn't help to convince anyone. He even tried to get the British government interested, but they turned him down too. It was the Russian Tsar who finally gave him the order to build his second submarine, which he named the Seeteufel, or Sea Devil. Bauer had learned his valuable lessons. The design was more cylindrical. It was also longer, close to 60 meters or 50 feet, allowing for 12 crew members, 11 of which operated a treadmill propeller. This time, the submarine had external buoyancy tanks, and Bauer had even included a novelty, an airlock, no doubt also after the shock of the fire diver experience. The Sea Devil submarine was launched in Kronstadt in 1855 on the Baltic coast, and it is said that Bauer pulled a stunt on the coronation day of the new Tsar Alexander II. Bauer had a four-man orchestra play the national anthem in his submarine while submerged, and people on ships close by reported that they actually heard the music through the water. Bauer Sea Devil made 134 successful sorties, making it by far the most successful submarine in history until that time. But it is said to have been purposely sabotaged by admirals who had grown jealous of the Tsar's admiration for the submarine. The story goes that Bauer was asked by admirals to demonstrate blowing up a dummy ship and was given faulty information about the depth of mud banks present in the area. Sea Devil submerged and got stuck in one of those mud banks. Barr was able to blow the ballast tanks, but had to use much of the air just to release the submarine from the mud. He was able to get the hatch just above waterline, so that all got out, but then the submarine sank back to the bottom. Disillusioned, Barr went back to Germany, and after a number of abortive new ideas involving underwater balloons, he died in Munich in 1875. 
But we need to back up to 1852 for a bit because that's when Indiana State native Lautner Phillips, shoemaker, built his second submarine. The first one he'd built already in 1845, but it collapsed under pressure. That's why I didn't mention it. He went on to build two more submarines, the last one being the Marine Cigar. Unfortunately, primary sources about Lautner submarines are few. The sources in writing are witness accounts in the second or third degree. Suffice it to say that he filed a patent for a hand-cranked propeller that was also used to steer the craft, controlling up-and-down movement and also to port and starboard. It is believed that Lautner claimed that his submarine could go as deep as 30 meters or 100 feet. He offered his designs to the U.S. Navy, but they rebuffed him, arguing that they had no need for submarines. Now, we know that Lautner Phillips was an avid and intrepid inventor, and one day he invited a reporter for the New York Times newspaper to take a trip. And it's interesting, because on the online archive page of the New York Times, you can still read the article the clearly nervous and scared reporter wrote while on board the submarine. Interestingly, the reporter also describes an air scrubber. Now, an air scrubber in present-day submarines is standard fare. It's a machine that literally scrubs the air from carbon dioxide, allowing you to basically recycle oxygen. Unfortunately, Lautner Phillips did not leave any designs, well, not that I could find in my research and travails, but the New York Times reporter describes the apparatus as a, consisting of three parts through which used air flowed, and then at the end of the machine came out reusable air. According to the reporter, they stayed underwater for hours on end. Lautner also tried to sell his submarine idea to the U.S. government at the outbreak of the Civil War, upon which he was again turned down. And what happened next is again murky. Some sources state that he went out for a spin in a submarine but never came back. Other sources state that he was experimenting with steam propulsion engine that exploded, taking him with it. Nonetheless, Phillips had thus been experimenting with steam propulsion, which is a step up from the hand crank propeller. And then we reach the end of the 1850s, and the camera pans back to Europe, and this time to Spain, where interesting developments were bubbling up to the surface. Spain, you ask? Yes, Spain. Bet you didn't see that one coming. I didn't, anyway. All that and more in the next part of the golden age of submarine invention in this A History of Submarine podcast. Mm-hmm.